Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. August is here, or um, the Black August, as it's usually called around Russia, because August is always, always the month which is the most tragic one, and if something bad can happen in Russian Federation or in the USSR, then by default that's going to happen in August. The most famous things would be the August coup in 1991 and the default in 1998, but, as usual, something is always happening in August, constantly. Like, in 2004, escalation war in Donbass. Again, August. Then, the whole mass fires in 2015. August again, and everything happens in August. It's kind of a superstitious thing, but if you look at the statistics, then, yes, August is always the darkest and the most terrible month. Every time that something bad happens, it always happens in this month. And it can't be explained because, you know, summer is over, people are, had enjoyed their summer, they returned from their vacations, and they're spending more time everywhere, and the economy gets weaker or something. But yeah, we're back to the Black August, so to speak. And uh, this time I'm going to be talking about two other things that have uh, happened, and it's just the beginning of August. I will be discussing how the crackdown against the mass protests against the Moscow elections is happening right now, because there were massive protest actions in July 27th, and then another one on August the 3rd, a week later. Two unpermitted protests happened against the blatant falsification of the Moscow city administrative elections, because, you know, Moscow is a super megapolis with insane amount of people, about 20 million people live in Moscow, and... Uh, these elections are very important because, well, there's a lot of corruption going on. And about the massive Siberian wildfires. These both things are, well, very disturbing, but in different ways. It's somewhat, somewhat tied together because in one case, we can see how these administrative elections can really matter so much that all of the Rosgvardia, their national police department, their special internal army, was mobilized to basically clamp down on opposition candidates, 
just to not anyone who wasn't from the approved party list to get elected in Moscow. And in a way, it ties together with these Siberian wildfires because they, well, started because of one of the local Siberian administrative officers, one of the clerks over there, who wanted to hide their illicit activities and decided to, you know, just uh, start a bit of a fire, to, you know, as a cover-up, basically. And these things, well, have led to one of the most bizarre events in this weird month of August of 2019. So this is what the show is going to be about, another one of the political episodes, but we're going to move away from that and back to our historical ones soon enough. So, let's begin with the protest actions. Basically, in September, there are going to be city Duma elections in Moscow, and also there are going to be some elections in St. Petersburg also for the city Duma where everything is run by Yedina Russia, well, Putin's party, United Russia, and they're, well, <clears throat> allowed opposition parties and stuff, but the crackdown's really hard. Anyway, as some free-spirited people were really trying to look into these elections to fight the corruption and everything, this September city to elections were shaping up to actually be some interesting showdown between um, independent candidates and so-called unaffiliated representatives of the authorities, because due to the massive unpopularity of Yedina Russia or United Russia Party, basically none of the people who actually are members of Putin's party, and because they've become massively unpopular, well, none of them decided to transform the party and instead chose to run as unaffiliated. What happened was that due to how the Duma works and due to how everyone can, in both of these city Dumas, instigate an investigation and maybe mess up their corruption schemes, well, it was troubling because there was a real chance that someone who's not of the United Russia might get elected there, and that could cause a lot of trouble, because then maybe a bunch of people would have to answer why they have basically stolen property, why they have taken insane amounts of bribes, and why they have, like, false funding, and how they've basically enriched themselves immensely at the expense of the taxpayers there. So, of course everyone and everything, and, uh, well, basically forced the uh, election officials to smack down hard on the opposition. Basically, they refused to register dozens of challengers, even though they follow the rules, because to register as independent or from some sort of a party, there's a bunch of rules that you have to do, essentially getting a bunch of, you know, authorized signatures. Supporters of these would-be candidates have protested the decision, and, uh, well, in Moscow, the first protest happened on the 27th of July, and the second one on the third one, but we'll get to that. But yeah, no one really cares. And in a report published by Mediazona, two journalists, David Frenkel and Maxim Lutavrin, basically have summarized the excuses the election officials in Moscow and St. Petersburg have offered for rejecting these candidacy applications ahead of these elections that are going to happen. And they are so blatant and terrible that, yes, people are just going out in the streets in the protest because they see that as even more crazy than ballot stuffing because they just want to get rid of all the opposition even before any voting begins. For starters, several prominent politicians, including Ilya Yashin and Lyubov Sobol, lost their shot at candidacy because of endorsement signatures tossed out by handwriting experts. Both Yashin and Sobol responded with video appeals from specific supporters whose signatures were invalidated, which basically means that the election committee had <clears throat> suspicions about, you know, these signatures endorsing the candidate to be allowed to run for election, and when those signatures were thrown out, the people whose signatures there were, they basically went there and recorded that, yes, we signed for these candidates, our signatures are real, please allow them to become candidates. 
and instead they got thrown out and the response was that well we do not know how you have influenced these people to sign for you so we can't accept uh, these signatures as valid even though the people themselves who signed them basically you know attest that yes they did it out of their free will because well obviously even if you sign for someone who's not uh, the leading guy then then you know just doesn't count in St. Petersburg, Yekaterina Kuznetsova, who was the local head of the political party Yabloko, was even told that her own signature endorsing Tatyana Lozovskaya was fake. Because <laughs> it was funny. Officials, by the way, later backtracked and rejected Lozovskaya's candidacy on different grounds, but yes, because, you know, the candidates can't endorse themselves, but this is the point where different opposition candidates endorse each other, and one candidate was told that her own endorsement of another candidate was totally fake. Because obviously it was. Several candidates were rejected because election officials incorrectly catalogued the names of the people who endorsed them, making it impossible to identify them in voter databases. Oppositionists Dmitry Gutkov and Alexander Solovyov say the mistakes are deliberate, pointing to obviously misspelled names and dates that don't make sense. Like the month <clears throat> 96 instead of 06 or, you know, June accordingly. Basically, they, uh, when taking these signatures, the election officials just misspelled the names so that they can later say that those people don't exist, or that obviously, you know, they took them in so-and-so June, but, you know, they misspelled June 96, not 06, and uh, because of that mistake, yeah, yeah, this signature is not valid. In Moscow, Communist Party politician Timur Abushayev was quite surprised to find his candidacy was rejected, because he left blank his form section on foreign property holdings. Abushayev owns no property abroad, and the city's paperwork does not specify that such candidates must write anything there, or must write none in this section, but he was disqualified precisely because he left the column blank. In fact, election officials initially ignored this blank space, but Abushayev's rival from the political party LDPR, which is the Liberal Democratic Party of Russia, the party of <coughs> Zhirinovsky, took him to court and won. The same thing happened to a Yabloko member in St. Petersburg, where the other party members were also rejected for failing to write none in the application section on criminal records. Another would-be Yabloko candidate lost her spot on the ballot because of supposedly poor binding on her paperwork and missing page numbers. Another candidate was rejected for failing to specify the total number of pages in their documents, even though this information isn't required anywhere, absolutely. Yabloko member Olga Lysova's candidacy was rejected because she failed to disclose in her income statement that she received 176 rubles, which is $2 American and 80 cents, yes, $2.80, in state assistance for her child. Election officials turned down another candidate because he didn't provide his taxpayer ID number, gave the wrong corporate address, and wrote the name of the tech giant Apple in English, not Russian transliteration, when disclosing his stock earnings. Also, most of the rejections in St. Petersburg were tied to claims by local election commissions that Yabloko never formally notified them about its party conference when it nominated its candidates. At least one election commission sat on the notification for several days and then said it was provided too late, while an election official at another precinct signed for the party's notification and then disappeared. And another election commission claimed that Yabloko's nominating convention was actually two different events because it ended after midnight, meaning that two notifications were required. Another commission told a group of politicians from LDPR that a single notification would suffice for everyone, but it later rejected everyone but the first name on the list. Elsewhere, one of Yabloko's members was turned away because he didn't capitalize the words political party. 
Yes, because, you know, political party Yabloko, you need to write them in, well, capital letters, obviously. Some of Navalny's candidates, which he supported, were rejected because they didn't present evidence of agreements with signature collectors. The commission decided that the individuals collected their signatures themselves, which it deemed a procedural violation because these people also volunteer at voting precincts. In past elections, however, voting officials have allowed such candidates to collect their own signatures. Collection contracts, at any rate, are never required paperwork when registering as a candidate in Russia's local elections. Also, a candidate in Petersburg was rejected because she allegedly failed to provide a copy of a page of her passport, but she says the local election commission changed the document she submitted and the scan records of on file don't match what she submitted. In Moscow, commission officials apparently changed the date on some of Konstantin Yanowska's receipts for signature collection payments, leading to the rejection of more than 500 signatures. Some election officials also deliberately changed PDF file extensions to EXE or EXE file extensions, making it impossible to open the files, and printed out incomplete copies of various PDFs. Also in St. Petersburg, commission members lost pages from accepted paperwork and won Just Russia Politicians Party nomination notification after issuing a certificate that the notification had been received. And so forth, and so on. It doesn't seem suspicious at all, one bit, comrades, that uh, all across St. Petersburg and Moscow, everyone who is not from United Russia gets into some sort of trouble, and of course these parties are fighting among themselves, but then they kind of united. Yeah, basically it's a mass bureaucratic apparatus fighting against even the possibility, the slightest chance, that Putin's United Russia might actually have some real opposition, and that, you know, everyone knows that there is going to be some ballot stuffing, but people might be, you know, more careful after the previous event known as elections where Putin won, obviously. But in these elections, people really, you know, are looking at all this stuff. But as if someone from the above has given the command to basically ensure that no one besides, well, candidates from Yudina Rashia get to get to the ballot post. And this time it was a bit too much. This time protesting happened. So there were protests in July 27th, and then there were protests in August the 3rd. And between that, a crackdown happened, and we'll get on in detail about the August the 3rd protests, because they, well, basically ended up quite much as like as the protests in 27th of July. As Medusa reports, to suppress opposition protests, Moscow, <laughs> with Sobyanin, the Moscow mayor, at the head of all this situation, has unleashed police, repo men, military recruiters, investigators, courts, prosecutors, and university administrators to blast out on anything. And everything. First off, following Moscow's demonstration on July 27th in support of free elections because of all this nonsense that's happening, the website OVD Info has reported more than 25 attacks on protesters. According to website Baza, law enforcement injured 77 people, including designer Konstantin Konovalov, who developed the city's subway logo. He was arrested while jogging roughly two hours before the demonstration even started. National Guard troops were so rough that they broke one of his legs while pinning him to the ground. The city then charged him with the misdemeanor offense of violating Russia's laws and public assemblies. Then, uh, further on, but we'll get to that on the August the 3rd, uh, at least 18 demonstrators ended up in the hospital because of injuries sustained during their arrests, because the police, National Guard, are beating people up. Secondly, 
The Federal Bailiff Service has carried out spot checks at the apartments of arrested protesters, of which there are many. On August the 7th, that is yesterday, the agency announced that it's uncovered a total of 26 million rubles, which is about $400,000, in debts, mostly unpaid credit card bills, owned by opposition demonstrators. In these raids, bailiffs search the activists' homes to draw property inventories and seizure orders. When bailiffs don't find individuals at home, they take <clears throat> compulsory measures to bring them before the authorities, sometimes even issuing an arrest warrant. This bailiff service has not really specified how many debtors it has identified amongst Moscow's demonstrators. But yeah, when the journalists asked, well, what are you doing? Why the sudden kind of activity among the protesters? Well, the press services responded that, oh no, no, this is just a regular spot check. Obviously, standard practices. Besides this, military recruiting officers are now tracking down draft dodgers, because Russia still has conscription. So on August the 2nd, the day before the protest that I'm going to speak about in the next chapter, Moscow's investigative committee announced that 134 of the men arrested at the July 27th protest have been evading conscription for <clears throat> extended periods of time. 16 of these people now face felony charges and officials stress that convictions in these cases will not release the defendants from Russia's mandatory military service. Even before the July 27th rally, Moscow's security and anti-corruption department warned activists that the authorities would be searching for draft dodgers at the demonstration, telling the public that, quote, a high proportion of those attending the protest were suspected of evading conscription. Military recruiters were sent to the police stations across Moscow that will obviously process the arrest demonstrators. And yeah, of course the officials searched for draft dodgers amongst them. At the same time, Moscow courts have jailed most of the independent city Duma candidates who played active roles in the July 27th protest. Municipal deputy and unregistered city Duma candidate Yulia Galamina was jailed for 10 days, then apprehended immediately as she walked out of jail and sentenced to another 15 days. The same thing happened to Konstantin Yanauskas, who was sentenced to 7 days in jail, then rearrested and given another 10 days. Independent candidate Dmitry Gutkov is now serving out a 30-day service, and he faces a future administrative charges once he gets out. Municipal deputy Ilya Yashin has been jailed for 10 days. Uh, you might recognize a bunch of these names from the previous uh, segment of the show, but let's carry on. Vladimir Milov has been sentenced to 30 days in jail. Anti-Corruption Foundation director and unregistered city Duma candidate Ivan Zhanov was sentenced to 15 days in jail. He's since declared to strike in protest. And his colleague Georgi Alburov was sent to jail for 10 more days. One of the only opposition leaders still free is Lyubov Sobol, an unregistered candidate who was fined 300,000 rubles, which is about 4.5 thousand American dollars, for her involvement in Moscow's July 15 rally, because that was that early stage of these protests, and later interrogated as a witness in the city's criminal investigation into supposed rioting of July 27th. The authorities cannot jail Sobol for a misdemeanor offense, however, because she has a child under the age of 14, and the Russian law prohibits the jailing of mothers with children who haven't yet reached this age. Further on, because, you know, obviously it's not going to be over soon, following the July 27th protest, Moscow's investigative committee opened an inquiry into alleged rioting, stating that unidentified persons planned to stage mass unrest with armed resistance under the pretext of demanding that election officials register the independent candidates who were denied access to September's city Duma race. The basis for the investigation is testimony from National Guard troops who say they suffered, quote, severe physical pain and emotional distress in clashes with demonstrators.
Still, they've arrested nine suspects from all of this, which are all known, and uh, a student at Moscow's higher school of economics, and a popular YouTuber, Yegor Zhukov, is the only suspect who's inspired a genuine public support campaign. On August the 1st, Rozhobadov, one of the suspects, declared a hunger strike to protest the authorities' allegations. And, yeah, there are a lot of more people hunger striking because everything's just going crazy with these crackdowns. Furthermore, Moscow prosecutors also want to revoke the parental rights of Dmitry and Olga Prokazov, a local couple who brought their one-year-old son to the July 27th demonstration, where they handed him off to the boy's uncle, Sergei Fomin, who was later named as a suspect in the rioting investigation. On July 31st, police searched Fomin's home, questioned him as a witness, and then released him. He was later charged in absentia and a warrant for his arrest was issued. The investigative committee subsequently summoned the Prokazovs for witness questioning in connection with child endangerment and neglect. And also, as usual with these things, universities are threatening activist students with expulsion, because on August the 2nd, Russian State University for the Humanities, RGGU, the provost of this university, Alexander Bezborodov, warned students that participating in unpermitted demonstrations might result in expulsion. Current students and alumni responded with a public letter addressed to Bezborodov, urging him to focus on his responsibilities at the university instead of, quote, finding ways to punish students for their extracurricular activities. The text even cites language in the European Convention of the Human Rights prohibiting double punishment for the same offense. Quote, if someone has been convinced and penalized by a state, judicial, or executive authority, the university should not punish that person again for the same act, the letter argues. Bezborodov was unmoved. In a response, the RGGU provost repeated his claim that the university has the right to expel students who take part in unauthorized protests. Moscow State Pedagogical University provost Alexei Lubkov also threatened to kick out any students convicted of demonstrating illegally. Without citing a specific clause, Lyubkov said the school's charter states that serious offenses are incompatible with continued studies. At Moscow State University, meanwhile, Provost Viktor Sandovich merely asked students to be very careful at future demonstrations, at the same time recognizing the students maintain the right to, well, defend their point of view, if their convictions demand it. At least someone here has some integrity. But these are all the crackdowns that happened, for the most part, between the 27th and the 3rd. On the 3rd of August, we had another nice little protest happening. Organizers this time structured this rally as a mass stroll along the city's boulevard ring, as no protests were sanctioned. Uh, in response to this and other protests and everything, Moscow Duma tries to organize public events as to, you know, legally deny the protesters their chance and to basically make sure that any of these actions go unsanctioned, thus people could arrest them. Hours before the event was supposed to begin, large numbers of police officers and National Guard troops National Guard shall become important soon enough, patrolled the public squares along the route, stopping passerbys at random to check their identification and inspect their bags. As usual, there's some disagreement and confusion about how many people attended the protest. Officially, police say 1,500 people participated, but eyewitnesses and observers, independent ones, say there were far more, at least 5,000. And some arrest reports cite exactly this figure. In a press statement, the police said there were roughly 600 arrests, but the Human Rights Project Oved the Info put the total at 828. The most severe mass arrests took place at Pushkin Square and Trubnaya Square. Interestingly enough, on the first of these reports, as I was watching them in the news, it was one of the cases of uh, the classical 300 people attended the protest action of which 700 have been already arrested. It is always 
always funny and glorious because, yeah, these reports, as I've followed at Homosqui and other things, yeah, they came in about the arrests and the amount of people because you can't show that too many people are arriving, but you must show that they all were arrested, or even some more. These arrests in central Moscow were, well, quite indiscriminate this time. According, again, to OVD Info, police arrested at least 81 minors and 14 journalists, as well as several Moscow municipal deputies and multiple candidates who have been registered to compete in next month's city Duma elections. Because, you know, you had to basically register some of them, but now they probably won't be able to participate because, hey, they're sitting in jail. Well, that's a debatable issue where there is not enough information available as of right now, however, it looks quite shady. Again, 18 demonstrators had to be hospitalized because, uh, because of injuries sustained, and one of these guys is just a teenager. To manage the large number of arrests, police took everyone, including the minors and injured people, to 51 different police stations across Moscow city. Several eyewitnesses reported that the authorities seized their mobile phones. According to the group Protest Apology, this was on orders from the investigative committee, and the Open Russia Human Rights Project says these orders are linked to a criminal investigation into mass rioting. In detention, protesters were denied food, water, and access to daughters and lawyers. For example, Hamoviki municipal deputy and former Medusa correspondent Ilya Azar wrote on Facebook that officials blocked the public's access to the Arbat police station, while Children's Rights Commissioner Yevgenia Bunimovich spent several hours speaking to juveniles arrested at the protest. Across the city, at least 19 demonstrators spent the night in jail. Oh, yeah. And Lyubov Sobol, who was still going free, basically of August the 2nd, yeah, she was ultimately on August the 3rd, brought to Moscow's Sherbinsky court, where she was fined. And now, now she got arrested as well, for a while. She can't be arrested, but she was, like, jailed for a couple of days, because you can do that, because, you know, no one really bothers. Investigators also formally opened a criminal case against Alexei Navalny's anti-corruption foundation for suspected money laundering. Because according to the officials, FBK staff, Fond Barbiskorupcije, this staff and persons with ties to its activities apparently had received cash from certain individuals knowing about its illegal origins between early 2016 and late 2018. The suspects allegedly deposited this cash to their personal accounts at ATMs, and then transfer the funds to the Anti-Corruption Foundation. Investigators say that the Foundation used the scheme to launder about 15.3 million US dollars. <laughs> Obviously, the Foundation's bank account has been basically shut down at this point, and weirdly enough, this comes just after a public investigation of the Foundation, which basically reported how Moscow City Duma has been basically taking um, valuable properties for themselves, giving free housing and apartments in Moscow for the bureaucrats, and what other things they've been doing which are not legal at all. At the same time, while all of this is going on, Siberia is suffering the largest wildfire in known history. And as National Guard, which was technically invented to basically also help out in these situations, is busy beating up people, these things go unchecked. So let's talk about that next, because the Black August still happens, and you'll be surprised to find out that these events are tied closer together than you might possibly imagine. Hey guys, Annette here. I hope you are enjoying our new episode of The Eastern Border. As always, a big thank you to all of our Patreons. The show would not be possible without your help. If you are not a Patreon and would like to become one, head over to the Eastern Border page on Patreon.com. 
Please remember to also follow us on our social media like Twitter where we are known as Eastern underscore Border and on our Facebook page. We also have a Discord server so if you're interested in that, find the link in the description of this podcast. That's it for now. See you online. This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu Enjoy! One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. First, about the wildfires. A little bit of background. In Siberia, wildfires are normal. Like, sure, they're more activated by human interactions and human misdeeds in the forest, but they are somewhat a natural phenomenon as well, as a way of, you know, natural processes too. They just happen because Siberia gets really hot and things happen. However, they have been increasing lately, and they started about two months ago, and I'll give you firstly a report from the 16th of July, when they had been going on for a month, up until, well, uh, this Tuesday, about which I have the latest information. But first, in comparison, I should remind you that in 2017, wildfires spread to around 1.4 million hectares, which is about 3.5 million acres in total. In 2018, last year, the wildfires spread to 3.2 million hectares, which is 7.9 million acres. Well, this year, you'll see about this year, because this is nowhere near over. Essentially, on the 16th of July, the media reported and complained, so did all the Greenpeace, that after a month of all of this, a firefighting effort, and this is from the July 16th, <clears throat> quote, Firefighting efforts have been minimal, even though hundreds of first responders have been mobilized in the impacted regions. The wildfires are located primarily in the remote forested areas where officials say the cost of fighting them would be greater than the potential short-term damage they could cause. Firefighters are deployed to fight the fires actively only when the flames threaten inhabited areas or infrastructure regions, which is reported by TASS on July 16. Yuri Lapshin, the governor of the Krasnoyarsk region, said Russia's federal forestry agency, Roslyas Hoz, prescribes that methodology nationwide. Quote, the logic is clear, we have to conserve resources. However, some of the Lapshinian's colleagues have insisted that the fire should be put out even if there is a hypothetical threat to economically valuable facilities or inhabited areas. Environmental activists and experts have gone even further, arguing that the control zone policy Lapshin cited is being applied totally incorrectly and only causes the fires to spread further, affecting vital natural resources and air quality. At this point, on the July 16, Radio Free Europe slash Radio Liberty project Sibir Reali noted, for example, that Russia's Natural Resources Ministry only gave the order for local firefighters to avoid fighting wildfires in hard-to-reach areas in 2015. Since then, environmental activist Grigory Kushin argued that a policy intended to save lives and money by keeping firefighters out of practically unnavigatable locations has instead been used to leave the majority of Russia's forests unprotected from wildfires. Environmental non-profit leader and government advisor 
advisor Alexander Kolotov also told Sibir Reali that the resulting disasters contribute to the greenhouse effect in the Arctic, forming a positive feedback loop. Nonetheless, Lapshin said emergency responders would do their best to work around the edges of the fire. That's the route firefighters took the village of Kuyumba in Lapshin's region. An emergencies ministry response team worked out to put on the fire, but neither aerial nor amphibious vehicles were deployed to assist them. Basically, this is all crazy. And how this whole thing started, currently, a lot of this has been uh, man-made, and there are independent experts in Echo Mosquit, for example, to whose analysis I listened to just the day before recording, who stated that, well, most of this is caused by illegal forestry and the local governors. Hey, those are the people who would be elected just like in case of um, Moscow City Duma. You know, they're basically illegally selling out state lands to forestry companies. You know, they're just allowing them to do forestry in the affected areas. And then, you know, they just cause a tiny wildfire, because those are sort of normal, to, you know, to hide up their illegal forestry things. That's the problem here. This is why those uh, city doom administrations are super important. By this point, by this point, I'm giving you the update from the 6th of August from Euronews. By this point, this ineffectual response, because, well, everyone's attention is on Moscow and beating up protesters and arresting people, has gotten slightly more out of hand. Euronews reported that, quote, <clears throat> Siberia's wildfires are not decreasing. They are only getting bigger, despite, at this point already, Russian Air Force intervention. Because finally, at one point, the Russian Air Force uh, had to get into this whole situation because it got really out of hand. Quote, in a situation update released on Tuesday, remember the previous year's uh, results, the environmental group said the area of existing forest fires reached 4.5 million hectares. Oh, and that's been growing by 0.2 million, which was on Monday. Monday, 4.3 million hectares. Tuesday, 4.5 million hectares. I presume it's a bit more now. In comparison, 4.5 million hectares is, well, according to translation, um, 11,119,742 acres. That's 11,119,000 acres of Siberia with nowhere nearing to stopping. Greenpeace Russia said on Tuesday in a statement that the area of forest fires in Siberia continues to grow, despite the statement by the governor of the Krasnoyarsk territory, Alexander Us, claiming that in his region there was a radical turning point in the fight against fires. Reached by Euronews, Greenpeace fire expert Anton Benislavsky pointed to the slow response of authorities, which is still continuing. The size is now hardly manageable. The fire is already too big, he reported. He added that the situation could potentially turn dangerous for local populations, as fires could develop unpredictably towards inhabited areas. Even from far distance, exposure to smoke could pose a danger to health. Weirdly enough, that this has gotten so huge that even NASA have been releasing data showing how the fire was spreading in some areas. And according to some nice reports, this is the largest wildfire in, like, past uh, 10,000 years. Yeah, it's a bit crazy. On the Sunday, by the way, last Sunday, that is August the 4th, Russia's Ministry of Defense said its air force had put out 753,000 hectares of forest fires in Siberia in four days, as the environmentalists described the blaze as an ecological catastrophe, which is, well, truly is. President Vladimir Putin ordered the Russian army to take part in firefighting efforts in Siberia on last Wednesday, which is at the point of reporting... That would be the 31st of July, again, just after, in between the protest actions in Moscow. Deputy Emergency Minister Alexander Chupriyan said that hundreds of people are affected by the effects of smoke. 
And uh, yeah, these series of emergencies of enormous wildfires have spread so fast and so crazily because, well, crazily enough, everyone's too busy stealing their own stuff and dealing with protesters. Meanwhile, Alexander Us, the governor of the Krasnoyarsk region, was quoted in Russian media as saying that, quote, it would be meaningless and perhaps even harmful to deploy thousands of people to help extinguish the flames. He said, the fact that this is a common natural phenomenon to fight with it which is meaningless but somewhere perhaps even harmful. The slow response from Russian authorities obviously has sparked an a massive angry backlash from local populations who report struggling to live amid thick smoke that has spread and blanketed major surrounding cities and territories. By the way, I told you that NASA has been getting involved with pictures and uh, alarming stuff because those wildfires are seriously huge. Oh yeah, because the smoke of them basically has now reached the, the west coast of the United States, so if you live there and your air quality goes down, yeah, know that it's because Russia's government decided that, ah, we don't have the money or resources and we're just gonna save some um, federal money here and we're gonna fight the protests, so um, if you get massive smog from insane amount of wildfires, say thanks to Russia. That especially alludes to people living in LA whose air is already, well, quite bad for most of the time. But yeah, neighboring countries have expressed concern, and this has reached, basically, according to NASA, even the West Coast. And it's just completely crazy, because if you Google this one up, you can see just crazy, uh, crazy, like, smog everywhere. Meanwhile, while some parts of Siberia have been battling with effects of these huge wildfires, others have been battling against another round of severe flooding, because the first round came after a cyclone hit in the region south in June, which brought torrential rain. It has still been going on because, yeah, there are a bunch of settlements have been flooded and at least 25 people were killed in the floods as well. So, well, <laughs> welcome, everything's just crazy. Because two months on, if you look at this, at this point, the Siberia's raging wildfires are visible from space, really. It's kind of crazy. Satellite imaging expert Anna Maria Lugonko has created now a nice animation showing a 2,000-kilometer cross-section of the Saha Republic that is littered with fires. Uh, the video was made up of 41 images uh, taken on August the 5th in the 2,000-kilometer area. And yeah, NASA's Modis Earthview system also basically takes all of the eastern Siberian region and basically dots it in smoke. And yeah, Greenpeace Russia estimates that these wildfires emit as much carbon dioxide as 36 million cars in a year. This is basically just crazy. This is crazy that um, Copernicus Atmosphere Surveillance Service estimated a week ago that fires through the Arctic have emitted as much uh, CO2 in July as the whole of Colombia in one year. And another uh, thing is that these wildfires are happening on top of the area with permafrost underneath, and the forest just will not regrow this time because they're spreading and they're getting crazier and most likely it's gonna be swampy, it's gonna get more floods because the forest will just not manage to regrow if the permafrost starts to, you know, melt up. And then uh, Russia's oil and gas reserves, because this is the region where they get them, are also under threat. So, yeah, at this point the wildfires are gotten so much out of hand and uh, they're so big that, yeah, this has truly become another one of those Black Augusts. Oh, and as of this point, there is basically no showing that these wildfires could stop at any given moment. And uh, obviously in Moscow, new protest actions are gonna happen soon. That just kind of shows that, well, if you have systematized corruption, then such events become more and more harsh. 
this just will continue and people might suffer even in the United States. And uh, we're going to see some terrible, terrible things happening soon enough. Besides, there are many economists who now, because of the latest wave of uh, sanctions from abroad, also predict that the Russian ruble will finally take another massive hit. Because, you know, I followed that for a bit, the ruble sort of stabilized back in 62 rubles per dollar. Now it's back to 65 because of the sanctions and protest actions and all of these nice, amazing things that just keep on happening. I should speak about Kyrgyzia, which is kind of next uh, to that area too, but... I'll have to leave that for the next time, because Russian ruble is again entering a black period. We haven't reached 65.32 rubles per dollar. Wildfires happening in protests. I think I'm gonna make another one uh, episode like this one in the end of August about how this black August ends for Russia. But let's just hope that this does not turn into a catastrophe on a global scale, and that, well, things come to at least some sort of a conclusion there. One thing, though, is that, uh, yeah, if you're my Patreon supporter or you've donated to me for PayPal, please email us, because late last month we released a special audio reading of a short novella, short science fiction novella, on our Patreon page for you patrons. We're going to be continuing to do such stuff for you, so let us know on the email if you have not gotten access to this or you haven't checked out the Patreon page for a while now. Anyhow, that was it for today, and I hope I'll get back to the Soviet history next time, but... As soon as August hits, it's always mass disasters and craziness. До свидания, товарищи. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the Western Border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The eastern border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.